Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to the podcast as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham. I am the college's heritage manager. And I'm Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we've got to the mouth. So I was thinking about it and, you know, when you think about it, the mouth has quite a lot in common with the anus. Okay, bold statement. So what I mean by that is when we're looking at the body and health in sort of, I guess, 1600s, 1700s sort of time, a period when it is incredibly dangerous to try and open up the body to see what's happening inside. So you're talking about pre-anesthetics, you're talking about pre-sort of concepts of sterilization and so on. If something's going wrong in the body, you cannot open it and look inside. You have to try and figure out what's going on based on the points at which the inside of the body meets the outside of the body. <laughs> so you tend to pay particular attention to the mouth, and the anus, particularly what goes into and what comes out of them, but also just what they look like. So there's a lot of studying of the inside of the mouth to try and understand, does it change colour? You know, is there more saliva? Is there less saliva? And what can that possibly tell you about what's happening to the lungs or the kidneys or or whatever else? That is the basis for my bold statement. It's the gateway to the body. (laughs) There There is a sort of logic. So there's a lot of studies of the various different kinds of damage you would get to the mouth. So it could be called a sore or a canker or an ulcer, but basically things in your mouth. What can it tell you about what's going on? And these kind of reality come from all sorts of different things, many of which were not understood at the time. So they can be vitamin deficiency, iron deficiency, folic acid deficiency, you know, things like that, but also signs of disease. So there are things like tuberculosis and, of course, more recently, a HIV, where there are marks within the mouth that would give you an indication of what's going on. But they would also look at the inside of the mouth and take it as a sign of melancholy and all these sorts of more abstract diseases. But the most common studies of the mouth and the meaning of the mouth tended to link back to syphilis. One study that I read said that in late 1700s in London, one in five people contracting syphilis. So this is incredibly common. I'm not 100% sure that when you're looking at, I mean, obviously the research was done very well, but it's data from the 1700s can be tricky. But yes, you know, especially in a big city like London, it is pretty common. And there's a lot of stigma surrounding it, of course. So no one will marry you if you are syphilitic or you might struggle to get a job if you're syphilitic so it's something that you would be very concerned about the perception of so i do feel quite sorry for anybody who had a vitamin deficiency and therefore had certain kind of sores 
Because, yeah, people are going to be making all sorts of assumptions about you. And, of course, it's even worse by the fact that one of the treatments or the major treatment for syphilis is mercury, which could be taken in a whole bunch of different ways. But one of them was to put it in your mouth or on your lips. And that then causes even more gum ulcers and it will make your teeth fall out. I was going to say, I've seen historical dramas where... Um... Documentaries, we're calling them documentaries. Well, document- yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> where... The mercury turns people's teeth silver. Yes, and it will do the same to the skin as well. It will be quite dramatic in terms of uh, how it will look, but it will also literally, as I say, make your teeth fall out. It will cause horrendous ulcering. So it will only exacerbate the thing that you were already trying to to get rid of. It's not something that will help hide the illness. And if you had a, a lot of money in that in that period if you were going through these sorts of treatments you would often go into to basically a sort of confinement so if you were being treated with mercury for your syphilis you would go to your country home and you would just haul yourself up for months and months at a time um because it was so obvious from looking at you that you were undergoing this treatment so you would just remove yourself from from society while you went through it but obviously that's a very small number of people who are in a position where they can afford to do that mm. I am. Um, it was when you were talking about um, orifices. I've just watched the most recent Ant-Man film. Then there is a character in it who's like a gelatinous creature. Um, and he asks how many holes Ant-Man has. So he doesn't have any holes. He doesn't have any bodily holes. He's like, how many holes do you have? And someone definitively says seven. And I then had to mentally count how many holes. I don't think they were counting. They weren't counting eyes as holes. That's fair enough. I, I, I accept that. But I think there was an understanding. And I mean, you know, on a, on a medical basis, it, it holds true that, you know, the mouth is obviously a better conduit to things than, say, the ears would be in terms of something that connects an awful lot of the body. It does make more sense when you think when you think about it that way. Why so many of the treatments involved putting things up someone's anus as 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 it being like a route to the inside of someone's body i don't know if this is being too sneaky but i have are lips included in mouth no i think they're included because the thing that i'm really enjoying as we go around the body is all the english language phrases that you have for almost every single body part so we start off with like loose lips sink ships paying lip service Putting lipstick on a pig, which is a bit of a slightly <laughs> rude one, is obviously connected to lipstick. And that's something that I got quite fascinated by. I think I, I sort of thought in a very simplistic way that there was some sort of linear trajectory where lipstick came into being and then it became progressively more what it is today. So more popular, more commercial. And what seems to have actually happened is it's gone through these really stark sort of cycles where everyone wears lipstick, both genders, and it's fine. Then it becomes illegal and it's terrible and immoral. And then 50 years later, it's fine again. And just sort of (laughs) fluctuating through this cycle that I, yeah, I didn't expect to be the case. Even more of a controversial history than I thought it would have. Why was it illegal? It may be the case that lipstick now in the 21st century, in 2023, has less meaning than it has ever had before. Because in history, it seems to have so much baggage attached to it. 
And so I should say, first of all, when I'm when we're talking about lipstick, we are talking about very visible lipstick. So obviously now you can get lipstick that's very, very pale, flesh coloured. But really, in history, we're talking about either bright red or bright purple or black. Those are the most common historical colours. Black surprised me, particularly in Egypt. A lot of black lipstick in Egypt, apparently. I should also say in a slightly cheaty way, um, lipstick in the sense of what we use now only came into being in the 1880s. So most of the time we're talking about some sort of lip stain that you would probably have made at home that would be in- ingredients would be in a, in a recipe book or or something like that. Um so yes, in in ancient Egypt it seems to have been worn as I say by kind of by both men and women equally. It wasn't gendered, it wasn't particularly associated with social class. Is it always used visually or was there another purpose for it? I think it was generally used visually. Mm. You're really talking about something that has some kind of stain colour in it that will colour your lips. So the main purpose really is the visual one. When we're talking, you know, what I was saying before about legislation, we're talking about ancient Greece. So lipstick becomes particularly associated with prostitutes they are much more likely to wear lipstick and much more likely to wear bold lipstick. And so legislation is introduced, which essentially says, if you are a prostitute, you have to wear lipstick because otherwise you might be trying to fool men into thinking that you are a marriageable woman. Oh, wow. That was the total reverse to what I thought it was going to be. So it's very much about the idea that women are devious and that they might try and trap men. So this is about protecting men from these women. Right. And then, as seems to be always the case, by the time of ancient Rome, it's flipped. And again, both men and women are wearing lipstick and it is connected with rank and social standing. So you'd be more likely to wear your sort of purple if you were purple is particularly associated with high status. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a real shift in, in approach. The Middle Ages and then into the sort of early modern period, 1500s, you'll probably have a mental picture of how popular red lipstick is because you'll probably be able to picture Queen Elizabeth I. Very white skin, red lips. Um, (laughs) But yes, so again, we've gone from, you know, the period when it's associated with prostitutes to the period when it's now associated with the most refined and upper class members of society. And then there's another shift because you get into the period of witchcraft and red lips starts being associated with witchcraft. And that almost sticks now to a greater or lesser extent. There's this idea that those kind of bright lips are associated with women who are particularly vocal, strident, visible women. A lot of suffragettes wear very red lipstick because it's viewed as sort of intimidating men, strong women, women not doing the role that they're supposed to be doing. Quite transgressive. Another thing that an article that I was reading about lipstick was talking about lipstick now, so not not historical lipstick, but it was this um, interesting sort of data-based study of the names of lipsticks Um, So it started off by talking about how lipstick sales in the 20th and into the 21st century has an inverse relationship with economic prosperity. So basically, the more poor people are, the more lipstick they buy. And then they were talking about, as I say, kind of literally looking at all of the lipsticks that are produced by by the sort of major commercial companies, not, not necessarily, you know, the smaller local companies. But the three largest categories of names were food, 
sex and minerals. So all the names are things that are very indulgent, things that you might want to have or own or buy or have in your life in some way. I was just going to say, if there's any um, any makeup marketing people out there, I, I much prefer a pun. If there's some kind of wordplay in the name, that's what lures me in. <laughs> I don't I don't think I own any lipstick right now. I was trying to think of names of lipstick. My The eyeshadow that I bought the most recently was just called Swamp Green. And I feel like that's... <laughs> That's me as a person. Like, fine. It's just, I'm an <laughs> uncomplicated person. <laughs> so, I had a little bit about cultural etiquette of slurping in Japan. It's considered polite to slurp noodles and ramen because, like wine tasting, if you slurp, you take in more air and that enhances the aroma. So you get more of the flavour of what you're eating. Um, but also because noodles <laughs> are thought to have their best texture when they're freshly cooked. You don't want them in the broth for too long because um, they go soft and disgusting. So if you eat quickly, if you slurp them quickly, then you are appreciating them at their best. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any other sort of... Do we have any equivalent food etiquette in Britain? Well, I think you're supposed to not slurp your food and i i remember when you have soup you tilt the spoon away from you to scoop the soup onto your spoon you're not supposed to blow on it and you have to eat it silently we didn't have etiquette classes at my school as a child (laughs) in our case study today we're going to look at the history of the importance of speech and verbal communication in the diagnosis of the patient. The patient's description of their own illness was a big part of humoral medicine. This is a form of medicine which was pretty central to medical treatment in Europe from ancient Greece to the 1700s. This is because figuring out a patient's humoral balance, and therefore how they needed to be rebalanced, depended a lot on their temperament and their lifestyle. These were things a doctor was unlikely to observe for themselves, so they had to take their patient's word for it. So, for example, when the French physician Jacques Ferrand wrote on the diagnosis of what he called erotic or romantic melancholy in the 1600s, he emphasised the importance of studying a patient's dreams because they delivered, quote, knowledge of the humour that doth predominate and demonstrated the disposition of the body. But towards the end of the 1700s, there was a definite shift from relying on what the patient told the doctor to relying on examining their body to make a diagnosis. There are a lot of reasons for this. Advances in examination techniques, percussions, stethoscopes and the like was one reason. Another reason was that patients were being treated on a much larger scale. With the rise of hospitals and dispensaries in the 1700s, We're no longer talking about most treatment being a wealthy, paying patient being visited in their home by their personal physician. Now, wards and waiting rooms were filled with the sick poor, and diagnoses needed to be made quickly and efficiently. It was simpler to rely on formulaic examination techniques than on lengthy, complex discussions. But, in addition to all this, there was also a problem of trust. Physicians, when treating their wealthy, paying clients tended to trust their word, or at least they pretended to because it paid their bills to do so. But trusting the testimony of a well-off patron was quite different from trusting the word of a pauper, 
and this was compounded in the context of hospitals because there were certain advantages to misrepresenting your complaint. A warm bed, a hot meal, access to medication. Whether patients did fake their conditions as often as was suspected is impossible to know, but certainly in the late 1700s and through the 1800s, the concern that the patient's voice, their explanation of their own symptoms, could not be trusted, was something that physicians and surgeons frequently commented on. This short clip is courtesy of the Welcome Collection and first aired on BBC Radio Sheffield in 1972. Once again, we say a warm welcome to Sheffield's Health Education Officer Frank Roundtree to the Walk Right In Studio today. Frank, you uh, had me a little bit, uh, caught me a little bit unawares earlier on. You gave me a red pill, said suck this and see what happens, and I got the shock of my life. I think you better explain what this pill's all about. Yeah, well, I'm hoping during the next few days at the Sheffield Show to shock a great deal of people, a number of people uh, who come along. What I'm challenging the people of Sheffield is to dare to look themselves in their own mouths. Dental illness is one of our major problems today. It's a preventable condition, like so many other conditions, but it's only preventable if the individual takes action. And one of the most important actions is cleaning their mouths properly. You notice I don't say cleaning their teeth properly. You must clean the whole mouth because it's care of the gums and teeth that's terribly important. And what we want to show people is that they just don't know how to clean their teeth and that they don't teach their children how to clean their teeth properly. Now this red pill that you're talking about is quite a harmless little device, but it really does make you see the truth there in your mouth. Because any food or debris that's been left between the teeth, any gubbins, we call it technically plaque, that's left on the teeth as a result of improper cleaning, will be stained a bright red. And we want both adults and children with their parents, we're not going to deal with young children on their own, to come along to our unit at the Sheffield Show, it'd be very, very obvious, the big dental unit, and just chew one of these tablets, they're very pleasant tasting, they're strawberry or raspberry flavoured, just chew one for half a minute, and then take a look in the mirror. They will get a shock. I know I did the first time that I tried this, because I found that there were one or two nooks and crannies that I wasn't cleaning properly. If we learn where we've made our mistakes, we're able to go on and correct them. Clean the mouth properly. And cleaning of the mouth properly is one of the best safeguards against dental and oral illness, illness of the mouth. You're your own best friend, along with the dentist, when it comes to protecting the teeth and promoting oral health. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. A single household recipe book compiled by generations of women for use in the home, would contain recipes for custard and tarts alongside treatments for syphilis and gout. Recipes for cleaning products and cosmetics would be mixed in with those for laxatives. Recipes relating to the lips covered different types of recipes, 
both diseases or complaints of the lips, and recipes to beautify or colour the lips. One common lip complaint was cankers, which were ulcers which should develop around the lips or gums. Recipes to treat cankers included this one, from an 18th century printed recipe book, quote, Burnt salt, burnt eggshells, burnt copper, burnt bones, wormwood, of each an equal quantity, make powder thereof and mix them well together, and strew the powder into the canker, and let no water come to it. Other lip-related recipes from the same text included a recipe for sore lips, which was very simple. Quote, Take a white hen's grease, and anoint therewith as you stand in need. Another similar recipe from the same book for chapped lips recommended goose and hen's grease, or oil of yolks of eggs applied. Recipes for lip salves were common in the 1700s and 1800s. Usual ingredients were beeswax, butter, olive oil or suet, and ox marrow or lard. These were cooked together over a gentle heat, and then, while cooling, additional elements were added to give the salve a pleasant scent, such as rose water, orange flower water, cloves or lavender. Sometimes sugar was also added, in order to give it a more pleasant taste. Often these salves were designed merely to moisturise the lips or protect from becoming chapped or rough. In other cases, they contained ingredients such as ground-up insects, saffron, or ground-up rose petals, so that it would stain the lips as well as moisturise them. There were many different ingredients to these salves, however, and many had a distinctly regional flavour. French salve most commonly included roses. In England, the recipes more often called for apples to also be added to the mix. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage, and we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.